Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is David Alexander, the co-host of the Between Two Ravens podcast and creator of the Prosoke Project. David is a psychotherapist, a founding member of the Walled Garden, and someone with a deep interest in practical wisdom. In the conversation, David and I discuss knowing yourself, finding clarity, stoic mindfulness, navigating paradoxes, the discipline of discernment, and so much more. You can learn more about David's work in the world at prosokeproject.com and at thewalledgarden.com. Without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious David Alexander. Well, David, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be here. It's good to finally get to uh, talk to you more. I know we've been in the walled garden together for a while. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I've been looking forward to it and wanting, wanting to connect here for the last few months, so I'm glad we're able to do it. And today we're going to be talking about the wisdom of Carl Jung, Stoicism, other topics. But before we get into some of that, I, I want to spend some time on your own search for, for wisdom. Could you share a bit about yourself? Yeah, so that's why I'm a psychotherapist. I practice therapy here in New Mexico, and um, I've been practicing for about six years um, especially my training really is in cognitive behavior therapy. Um, in, you know, we, we get training in a lot of different modalities kind of, so counseling, uh, li- you know, really listening, right. Reflective listening, really hearing people figuring out what they need. So it's not just what we as a professional think is best for them. It's really that kind of counseling approach. Um, and so for my, as far as my search for wisdom, it started a few different places. You know, when I was 18 in high school, reading about cognitive behavior therapy, reading Albert Ellis, that's where it really started. That's what I did my talk about in the walled garden was that. Um, and that's what really got me interested in, in psychology and this idea of how to kind of heal, um, heal yourself, heal emotional wounds, kind of things like that. And then it was really only after the, during the COVID pandemic that I started reading stoicism formally. I knew a little bit about stoicism before that, but that's where I really started diving into it, listening to a lot of different podcasts, especially during the pandemic, every single day going to work, I was listening to people talking about stoicism, the dichotomy of control, the unity of virtue. And, and somewhere in that, it's that part of really understanding, you know, your nature, human nature, things like that, that something with Carl Jung kind of popped up this idea of un- understanding your unconscious mind as a part of understanding your personal nature, different from your human nature. Um, kind of a related aspect to my interest in philosophy too, is the existential psychotherapist like Viktor Frankl, that understanding meaning, how, how meaning is an important part. It's separate from the stuff we look at with CBT. That is just, what are your automatic thoughts? What are your emotions? How are your emotions, you know, uh, causing you dysfunction, but really actually giving you meaning that that's a long-term kind of resilience and answering these questions that aren't entirely uh, rational or logical. It's it's really interesting. On on most episodes, I, I spend a, a bit of time talking about, and I guess curious about 
discerning one's particular path in life. You know, how did you do that? You know, you think 18 years old, as you mentioned, picking up Albert Ellis. That's not what I was doing when I was 18. You know, what what led you and, and how did you maybe discern your path to where you are today? You know, at 18 years old, I think I was doing a book report uh, for an AP psychology. We actually had, he was a, a clinical hypnotherapist and he was retired as our uh, high school teacher. So it was a really unique uh, experience I got there. But then I was always convinced I needed to be doing something in the hard sciences, like engineering. And so I, you know, spent, in college, I spent a semester trying to be an engineer, the next semester trying to be a computer scientist, the next semester trying to be an architect. And I always took psychology in the background. So there was this thing where it's like, there's something here that you need to understand about, you know, understanding other people, um, understanding, you know, what it is about your own emotions, things like that, that I've, I didn't really, yeah, didn't understand my emotions from a young age. So that, that was something I was always seeking, I think. And, um, yeah, I wanted to go to grad school for clinical psychology, but got into the master's for a, for a PhD, but got into the, this, uh, master's program where they, it, it was kind of a strange thing, right? I took the GRE, the, the graduate exam, uh, tests and they send those scores out to all kinds of schools so they can kind of try to recruit you and poach you. Uh, they're like, Hey, you got a good score. We want you here. And so they kind of, sometimes they're making you offers. And this one was like, you know, you'll have a, a teaching assistantship, a research assistantship. You'll have a, an internship with a neuro, you know, possibly with a, a neuropsychologist. And I'm like, that's, that's hard to beat, even if I'm moving 5,000 miles across the country. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, it's sort of these things that lined up. Some of it was intentional and some of it's just where it landed. Yeah. Well, I love it. And I, I appreciate some background. I want to read you something that, that you wrote on the, the walled garden website. And it says, my goal in studying integrative disciplines of psychology, philosophy, and mythology is to better understand the self. You know, what does the self mean to you? And what does it mean to understand the self? That, that's the idea, right? I think, I think I've heard you talk before about, you know, um, a little bit of the ego and self and things like that on s- some of the different interviews you've had. Cause you think you, you know yourself, right? That's, you know, I am who I am and, and this is me. Yet there's parts of you that you don't fully, um, realize, right? That's those times when you, I think they said a lot of what brings people into, you know, Jungian psychology or being a, a patient would be to realize, you know, that wasn't me. I did something and, and that wasn't me or I don't really, actually understand my motivations or something like that. And then you have to wonder, well, then what's, where, where is that? What, what is that actually all about? Um, and as it's, it's talking about those integrative kind of disciplines, the word psyche in Greek means the soul. So psychology is sort of the study of the soul yet. Modern psychology is very scientific, doesn't really believe in the soul. So it's the study of something that's uh, not believed in. And so that question of, yeah, what is the self? It's a, uh, it's not just your conscious mind. It's, it's very much, it's just a question of what is it? And that, yeah, Carl Jung's theories speak to it, I think more effectively than uh, a lot of things in like cognitive or uh, clinical psychology. Yeah. Why take an, an integrative approach? You meant psychology, philosophy, even mythology. Yeah. What are the, the benefits there? That I think somewhat it is that they're all connected, right? It's the things that in, in ancient times, it was all religion or spirituality, right? How did we understand ourselves and how we fit into things? It was just religion, right? And then um, I'm sure you're familiar with Nietzsche's quote, you know, God is dead, right? And that's sort of 
really just his observation that at that time in culture and society, the society doesn't just believe everything coherently, right? We don't know where we fit in. And, but mythology are the old stories of the cultures, right? Of where we fit into yeah, the, the cosmos, right? And, and philosophy asks those questions in a much more kind of analytical way, right? That kind of out of the Greek Roman tradition, um, that they're all doing the same thing is one way I would say that. And you've got a podcast between two ravens. Yeah. What are you getting after there? Yeah. That, that's when I started. It, it was funny because it started my friend, Sean, who I went to elementary and high school with. He was talking about some things that he really loves about with history that he finished his own master's degree. And he's like, I love learning and I got nothing to learn now. I finished my master's. What do I do next? So he just started reading history and he's fascinated by these family lineages of the kings showing who they descended from and that they descended from Odin, the, you know, the, the king god of the Norse mythology, or they descended from Adam and Eve back to Christianity even, or things like that. And so he was talking a little bit about mythology right while I'm picking up these books on Carl Jung and the idea of how mythology is a representation of our unconscious mind. It was the way ancient cultures tried to do a primitive psychology was they described it with gods and hero stories and things like that. Um, so as we're trying to make sense of these, an unconscious mind, you're not conscious of it, right? It's how do you become aware of it, that it, it sneaks out in some of these stories. So it's kind of like the mythology is a language to understand what is the, you know, human nature. One way to say that. Let me throw a difficult question. At least I find it to be difficult when people throw it my way. What have you, you know, gained from this, this venture of, of doing this podcast and how might it, you know, shape how you see yourself, others, daily life from yeah. a practical standpoint? It's really interesting because when we started it, we really didn't know what we were doing. We sat down like a Zoom call like this and we're just like, I think the first episode was called, uh, hey, Sean, what are we doing? Right. What is this? What are we even trying to make this podcast be? And we just recorded it to see where it went. But that one of the things kind of he brought to my attention, too, is there's some people who really take the Norse mythology as a modern uh, heathen pagan religion, right? So it's kind of actually looking at like sacred texts, almost like looking at the Bible or any other cultures, uh, sacred books. So then to take those stories with a lot more respect and be like, you know, some people, we don't want to make light of it, right? We want to take this seriously. It means a lot to some people. And then to take it with that attitude and to see these stories, um, you know, they talk about magic, that there's modern people who practice magic and it just like, what, what are they getting out of this? I don't understand it at all. Right. And that really opened for myself, actually a lot of questions on like spirituality. Um, one perspective I like, cause I was kind of asking this question, can you be one foot in and one foot out? Can you be one foot in this scientific rational world, one foot in trying to really make sense of what magic is. And the, the so an answer somebody told me was maybe you can jump in with both feet and then also jump back out with both feet. And I think that's something Carl Jung did that he would kind of put on his hat, the, you know, the, scientific, you know, psychologist hat, but then sometimes the religious mystical kind of hat, um, depending on what was needed, you get different things from the different perspectives. Yeah. That's an interesting idea of, um, jumping in with, with both feet and even, even just thinking about that. I, I have a quote here that I wanted to get your thoughts on and it connects with clarity the more I think and live and, and search for wisdom and things like that, I tend to find it 
really important to have clarity. Also flexibility, but to know what you're doing. So let me read it. Young uh, said, one's own philosophy, conscious or unconscious, depends on one's ultimate interpretation of facts. Therefore, it is wise to be as clear as possible about one's subjective principles. Yeah. You know, in your work as a psychotherapist, you're reading, studying, searching for wisdom. How do you think about clarity in navigating life? Yeah. I think especially what that quote says to me is to be conscious of what you're doing, right? Because we're all doing something with a lot of assumptions and a lot of baggage, even if we don't stop and analyze it and look at it, right? So that, and that's what I, yeah, the most recent talk I gave was on mindfulness and why, how, why I feel that is so important is to be mindful, right? Am I trying to, you know, what is my role right now, right? Am I sitting down with somebody as a therapy client? We're billing insurance. We're doing evidence-based psychotherapy, right? Or are we kind of just talking about finding meaning? And then there's somewhere that's kind of an overlap where sometimes in therapy, questions of meaning come up and you, you explore that for a little bit because that's what, that's the question they're asking and they kind of can't go any further until they can ask some of these hard questions of what, what gives life meaning, right? And not just what works for me, but what works for people in general, what are the theories, right? So then you move a little over to, well, here's what Viktor Frankl says. Here's what some different people say um, that. So I'm trying to go back to your question of, of clarity that one of the things that is you've asked me sort of all these integrative disciplines and you're saying, right, is you're trying to make sense of it yourself. Sometimes it feels very unclear and you want to get clear um, to recognize the idea of like paradox, right? Especially with spirituality, that some things are a paradox. So at first it can feel like it's just a cloud and it's messy and you don't know where you stand, but then to actually have some clarity that there are two alternatives and maybe they're both kind of true. We can't prove one or disprove the other. We just have to sit with that uncomfortable tension. And that gives a little clarity rather than it feeling chaotic. It's, yeah, it's a paradox. Yeah, it is. It is really interesting of, I think, in previous conversations uh, on the podcast and in a, a talk I gave at the Walled Garden as well, talking about the, you know, Heraclitus yeah. and whatever I say, the opposite is also true. Right. And it comes up more often than we realize. Yeah. I think of, um, you know, even, and we'll, we'll get into it in a, in a bit, but even the idea of maybe Socrates of not knowing, there's also knowing involved there. Like in that, yeah. in that famous quote, it's knowing yeah. that you don't quite know or right. have the complete, picture right so it, it's it's both in navigating and maybe holding these two things when when you say like for example jump in with both feet maybe there's a need to you know jump out is is that a thing and being mindful so it's like clarity paying attention to what you're doing yeah. but then there's this thing it seems like a layer back of peeling the onion back of now, like not just knowing what you're doing, but why you're doing it, is it actually the most useful 
you know, I think of Seneca and stuff like that, maybe on the shortness of life, this wandering about. Yeah, we want to pay attention. We want to be right here and be mindful. Yeah. But then in the way of clarity, maybe you could call that meaning Yeah. at times of, you know, well, why are we doing this thing that we're paying so much attention to here in the present moment? Right. I think one thing that comes to my mind as you're describing is that like to let yourself wander, right, is to go for a walk and you have no real intention other than you're going for a walk for a while and you see where it takes you. You follow the path. You're mindful. You still just observe, but you just take it all in without any like preconceived real uh, focus. But you maybe decided to do that from the beginning, right? You're like, I'm going to go do a walk and walk mindfully. And then you see what arises, right? Maybe some thoughts come to your mind or it gives you space kind of to process some things, right? To to integrate your thoughts, things like that, while you're not trying so hard to make sense of it. Uh, sort of a mm-hmm. different kind of clarity. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting, and and maybe that's something an example of holding to two different things. Of you know, we're wandering. There's flexibility, but there's also clarity and meaning yeah. behind what we're doing. Uh, one of my favorite quotes Seneca is, is writing, and he's saying to Lucilius that uh, of this idea of adopt a single rule to live by. You know, really get clear. <laughs> But then he also says in in the letter of don't think of the sage as um, of taking the same steps, you know, view it as walking a single road. So there is flexibility. There is going to be, you know, some some off ramps in time at times, but there is a single road. There is a, a particular place or destination. That's interesting that yeah, pick a single road, a rule to live by. Something feels very limiting about that, right? Like you have to pick one, but then also to be open, like maybe you're wrong, right? But you got to pick something or you're, you got nothing. It's, it's, it's too uncertain, right? Um, but then some, some things like with stoicism, like virtue, right? Like it's that, is that the rule to live by kind of, right? And that's, yeah, maybe that does fit, but you don't sometimes know what it means, right? Just defining through stoicism, what is virtue that takes, you can write a ton on that topic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to me, it comes back with clarity of you have to, that has to mean, something to you you have to know what that means and it could be different in terms of uh interpretations but it has to have some meaning to you let me uh transition into this idea of knowing thyself which we we talked a little little bit about and and obviously challenging thing to do young young wrote to find out what is truly individual in ourselves profound reflection is needed and suddenly we realize how uncommonly difficult the discovery of individuality is like is it possible to know yourself how how do you think about this idea of self-discovery one of of the questions some of the like they'll call like the neo-jungians really talk about is the structure of the soul which is kind of the idea of like that everyone has a soul that is kind of similar right so whether it's um one way to look at it is kind of like with, with virtue, right? Is that what, you know, a, a person with excellence would have wisdom, courage, justice, self-discipline, um, that everybody has that yet everyone's a little different, right? So that might be like your life experiences that throw you off the path, right? One way to kind of say that, um, that, and then, and it is the question kind of of personality. That's something I studied a lot in sort of the more conventional psychology is how do we measure a person's personality? 
And it's nothing we can see. We can't kind of hold on to it. We look at all the indicators of their behavior, right? So how outgoing are they? How much time do they spend talking to other people? They spend a lot of time at home. Do they, when they interact with somebody, are they agreeable? Do they go along with people? Do they refuse? You can see those things and then you say it tells you something about them, right? That their, their personality. Um, but we can never quite know what it is, right? We can come up with like a survey and that gives you a, a number, but that's not exactly the truth, right? So that's sort of one way I think of you, you have to observe yourself, right? And see how you act. But there's also that part that is the, where maybe everyone is kind of the same, right? The sort of the, you know, in Buddhism that we're all one, right? That we all share the same soul. There's a lot of different ideas there, but then there is something about how we, um, for Carl Jung, that would be the, the personal self different from the archetypal self. One way to say that there's something about us that we do know our preferences. We do know our values. They're probably mostly from our life experiences, but maybe there's a little bit that's just, we were born with it. Yeah. You mentioned, um, existential psychology and stuff like that in the beginning of the conversation. How do you think about the idea that some of the existentialists talk about of like Kierkegaard, for example, you know, you label me, you negate me this, this idea of freedom and possibility or just constantly becoming to throw out a few different things there. It seems sometimes that can run very counter to what you might read in terms of personality or um, yeah. e even in the way of preferences and in, in knowing yourself, how I read some of these existentialists is they're talking about, I think to me, it seems consistent with maybe what Heraclitus and others and, and some of the Stoics of Seneca might say, Hey, you're dying every day. That's in the past. This is a, a new moment. Existentialists might say becoming every day, which could yeah. be a bit more positive for some, but yeah. how do you think about that to throw out a rambling question to yeah. you? That, that with personality and you know, modern psychology, it's that it's something that's, that's generally stable. And they say generally over the lifespan, it'll be relatively stable, but there may be some stages in life where your personality has room to change. Cause we're kind of like moving out of your parents' house, becoming an adult, maybe when you retire or somewhere in later midlife crisis, right. And then it might actually change quite a bit, right? So that's, there's not as much research into that. There's that urge to just like, let's just try to define people. Let's try to measure them. We want to know what is the personality, but that's contrasted by, you know, them recognizing, yeah, there's, there is room for people to change. And then it might be, yeah, there's some moment, right? You make a choice, you can choose something differently. And then the whole rest of your path, path of your life takes a different, uh, looks different after that. So that's, it's actually a thing. It's interesting in the mythology too, that we really uh, keep coming back on this theme of fate because in, in Norse mythology, it's the three Norns, the three fates have decided your fate mm. from the beginning. It's all predetermined. And even, even Odin is constantly fighting it, but you can't change your fate. And he's constantly depressed and distraught and, and fighting. He can't accept the idea that fate is just predetermined. Um, and like with the Stoics, I think they have kind of a middle path kind of, uh, that a lot of things are predetermined our fate, but then there's a room for human, uh, free will too. I'm curious as a follow-up question, yeah. where do you fall? Do you land on a particular side there? I think it is again, kind of the, um, 
paradox. And I think you really can look at it either way, right? You could look at it that everything is predetermined. And when we stop and we're, we're trying to make a choice, a free decision, that's based on all of our life experiences and everything that got us up to this point. And it feels like we're going to make a choice and we don't know what we're going to pick, but it's, you know, you could say it's predetermined, but then also mm-hmm. if you very much look inside a person's mind, right? It, they're really making a choice. They're really deciding. Um, I don't think you can prove that it's predetermined, right? That's, I, I think it is, it just depends where you're looking from. Are you looking from the outside and looking at all the evidence that where you could estimate or predict their decision? Or are you looking inside their mind at their experience? Um, so that's again, another thing for me as a, a therapist, that's really helpful is to take another person's perspective. It doesn't really matter what science says. What is this person experiencing right now? That's what's happening for them. As a therapist, do you see any sort of common themes that, you know, may or may not cause, you know, sticking points or suffering in, in life, if you will? The, one of my favorite quotes of uh, Carl Jung, and I think I shared this with Simon in one of the meetups, is uh, that the child lives the unlived life of the parent. So whatever the parents didn't quite figure out, right. Or they didn't figure out how to um, maybe like stand up to people or, you know, they were always people pleasing that if they never figured it out in their lifespan, that's for the child to figure out. Um, and that'll be mm-hmm. your struggle in life until you figure it out. Cause you never had an example of how to do differently. Um, and you figure it out or you don't, and maybe it passes on to the next generation. And that's just kind of uh, life. I think. Yeah. There's that, and then there's some things, things get so bad that things become hopeless and nihilistic. And then that's a challenge when you really uh, have a hard time seeing optimism, seeing a way out of that. Is, that's where I really um, brought me into the philosophy side so I could try to give people, you know, what are the arguments for another way to see that, right? I can't just keep telling you, be optimistic. You know, how can we maybe kind of rationally argue that looking at some of the philosophers? This is probably maybe not the best question in the world but how do we go from nihilism to a place of a lack of hope you know is there any particular first steps to to find a bit of a bit of meaning and hope in life yeah the the best i've been figuring out again i think it comes from that tradition with uh, victor frankl and i just finished the book uh, edith egger the choice right is that it is a choice, right? And that, and that doesn't feel like, I think, an answer people want uh, in the moment when they're feeling hopeless, right? That you could choose differently. And maybe then that it's a lot harder to choose that, um, right, when it's never been shown to you, when you didn't, you know, that, that you actually have to make that choice, right, is very different from somebody who grew up with an attitude of having hope and optimism and faith. Um, and that goes back to kind of ideas like, yeah, the responsibility, right? That it's, for your life to get better, do you have to start with making a change, right? And, it, and it's not fair that it's all up to you when the world is unfair, but I think that's where it comes down to. And uh, again, from everything I read, kind of, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I recently had a conversation with, with Brandon Tumblin, who, you know, on, on his podcast, and we were talking about, you know, just life as a series of choices. Yeah. It's like to live is to choose. Right. And 
I'm interested in this idea of, of discernment. Uh, I'm doing an episode on titled The Discipline of Discernment in a couple of weeks. But I've been thinking about that as like, how does one make wise decisions? Yeah. yeah. As a therapist, in terms of working with people one-on-one, and it's, you have choices. How do we make wiser decisions, if you will? Right. Any thoughts come to mind? Yeah. This is one from the uh, so dialectical behavior therapy is a lot of what I practice lately, what I've been trained in, um, especially since I graduated as I do continuing education and I've had some really good supervisors that the dialectical behavior therapy, it is kind of that idea of dialectics from um, Socrates in a, in a way. And it also comes from the, the Buddhist tradition of combining mindfulness, that idea of acceptance with cognitive behavior therapy that's very focused on change and how you change your thoughts and change your feelings. One of the one of the models in DBT is called wise mind. So it's your, you're trying to be mindful. You're aware of your thoughts, your reactions. And you notice that there's your emotional mind that sometimes you're feeling very emotionally and you, your thoughts, you know, you'll have emotional thoughts, right? So you're feeling afraid and all your thoughts agree with that fear. Um, and then there's your rational mind where maybe you, and this is one idea was to say like sort of overly rational. It's not just like kind of the logos of stoicism, but it's that, you say what's necessary, right? You know, you're, you're at a job and it's necessary to keep your job. So it doesn't matter that you're angry, just do what you have to do. Right. So it minimizes, it downplays your emotion that the wise answer is in between the two. You have to listen to both, right? Cause sometimes it is you're being treated really badly at your job and you need to leave it. But other times it is, no, you got to ride it out and, and no one can decide that for you. Right. But you have to take the two sides and figure out how to learn to like trust that, um, wisdom from yourself. Yeah. It definitely connects with uh, something in Buddhism called the middle way. And I think that applies also to many stoic exercises. And I almost wish it was discussed a bit more when you think of um, the view from above um, memento mori premeditating on what might go wrong. Yeah. You're not just doing those things. You're doing both. You're coming back and forth. There is some sort of middle way between many of those exercises and how you're making, you know, decisions. Like for the, for example, from the view from above, you're not just making the decision or only looking at that perspective from this cosmic view from above. Uh, I think it's in philosophy as a way of life. Pierre Hadot talks about the sage is able to see the whole and the part at the same time yeah. and basically find some middle way between those and to, to make a wiser decision. That I think the, the wisdom right, is sometimes finding that the integration of the paradox, right? That it's two things that feel opposite and you can struggle, right? It's an anxious feeling that there's these two opposites and I can't, um, how can you, how can you sit with that uneasy tension, right? How do you know the one or the other? And then somewhere where it clicks and you're like, oh, it's, it's that. I'm trying to think of, um, I really like this idea of paradox since I was reading about it from uh, Paul Tillich. I think is a Lutheran pastor, but one that the Jungians really like uh, for some reason. He always shows up. And he would talk about that, like the belief in God is, it's knowing that there's a truth, but knowing that we can never know the truth, right? So it's 
to, to say you're a Christian is to say that, you know, God is the truth. Yet also to be honest with yourself and to, you know, be kind of humble is to be like, we can't actually prove it most of the time. You know, if you're really, this is that idea of having like true faith versus blind faith is at least my way of saying it, um, that you, that you know, you can't tell, but yet you take the leap of faith. Right. And that's, mm. there's somewhere where that feels uneasy being like, but if I don't have evidence for it, I'm not okay with this. I can't stand it. Or that, no, this is the, you know, there is a deeper truth and I don't, and I don't get to see it, but it's, uh, I can still believe one way to say that. It's interesting. And I, I think that connects with the idea of knowing yourself, but, to I want to say something briefly on Paul Tillich, as you mentioned, I've heard his name come up quite a bit over the last couple of years. And I, I thought maybe it was a, a, a modern person that was still alive and stuff. And actually just yesterday I finally, um, ordered his book courage to be. Oh yeah. So I've been reading a little bit now. Yeah. I'm looking forward to that. One of his books here, but I don't, don't see it at the moment, but, uh, yeah, it was one of kind yeah. of his, uh, um, a book of his sermons and they're, and they're really interesting. I, I grew up Christian and I, um, you know, trying to make sense of it and all the other kind of wisdom traditions as well. Yeah. Yeah. But let me ask about the, the know thyself thing. There's a, a quote that I like from Nietzsche and I may butcher it here, but he says something along the lines of knowing yourself, you know, it's like how many skins do we have? It's, you know, seven times 70 or, or whatever it may be. How can you ever know that you've truly found yourself? But I don't think he's necessarily suggesting that you abandon the project. Yeah. Like there is still this thing, there's still this lifelong thing of know thyself. But it seems to be important that maybe you're not ever going to become to a complete answer or an accurate answer you're constantly changing how can you ever know that you've found you know that true self or yourself yeah one of the ideas i like is, is i studied a lot of math and i don't know if this reference will make sense to people who didn't um, enjoy calculus i don't know how many people actually enjoyed <laughs> calculus but the idea the limit <laughs> as x approaches infinity right is that it gets very very close to a number but you go on to infinity and it never actually touches it yeah, you get so close to it, you pretty much can see what it is. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. That um, so that idea that yeah, you you know, at first it's you know the persona that you put on for people, and then you figure out what of that is just a persona, a show, and what's really you, and then you're getting closer and closer, maybe to this kind of you know really the archetypal true self. What is you know the human condition or the ideal you know human soul, right? And that you're always a little different from that because you're are just human um is the idea you can never quite be the sage right but you can get more sage-like and try to approach it yeah and i wonder on the topic of and not to go on a tangent or anything we'll we'll move on here to an idea i think connects with it but the idea of knowing yourself of even getting close to it you know maybe we as so many people have written about how we so easily fool ourselves Maybe we have this tendency to think that we're closer than than we are. Yeah. Uh, um, and 
maybe to connect this and and take it whichever way you whichever way you want, David. Um, Young talks about the idea of darkness, the shadow. One does not become enlightened by imagining fingers of light, but by making the darkest darkness conscious. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that and the and maybe how that connects, if it connects? No, I'm I'm glad that's where I thought you were going. So to, yeah, to go back as I was talking about trying to be the sage, right? To to convince yourself that you're the sage and you're very sage-like, you might be really fooling yourself, right? These things you're doing, well, oh, this, I'm I'm very virtuous, right? I'm doing things seeking justice and I'm doing things, um, you know, I'm, I know this is wise. This is the wise thing to do. And I know this, right? And then you're unconscious of maybe the harm you cause, right? Or that you're not fully aware of what you're actually doing, right? So I think that goes to like the virtue of humility, how you have to kind of tie that into um, the stoic virtues. Because if, yeah, if you're too sure of yourself, you might be causing all kinds of harm. I think I wrote on about this a little in some uh, walled garden, one that was about maybe uh, Seneca and the shadow. Um, that so one way to define uh, one of the definitions I really like about the shadow or the, the image that Carl Jung gives is your consciousness is a light, right? It's like imagining that you're holding a, a flashlight right in front of you and whatever you're illuminating, that's what you're conscious of. But then the shadow is everything behind you, right? So if another way to say it is if like you're being lit up by this bright light, you see the front, but you don't see what's behind there. So whatever you're kind of showing, whatever you're doing, it always casts a shadow. It always has unintended or unconscious consequences unless you stop to get some clarity, right? Really be conscious of it. As a therapist, how do we examine those darker sides of ourselves without maybe taking on guilt, shame, some of these negative things, I guess. Yeah. It's why I really like the, the Jungians because they really look at the hard questions. Nobody wants to look at. Um, There's one book, actually I haven't read one of the books by this author, but I haven't read the book where he talks about really the shadow showing up in psychotherapy from the therapist, right? Things like building dependence in your clients, right? Because you don't want to do that. And then you have to constantly look at yourself to make sure that's you're not doing it because it's, well, it's convenient for you and it maintains, you know, having people coming to pay you every week. Right. But no, you want them to get better. Right. So that if you're not willing to self um, evaluate, self criticize, you won't be aware. And then that way to deal with the guilt, right. Is that, well, maybe sometimes you realize you were doing a little bit of that, right. Hopefully just for a, a brief period of time. And, and then you catch yourself and you do something about it to make it better. That's the, the best way to actually deal with the guilt rather than avoid it and hide from it. Where does one begin to see their shadow, take a, maybe a little quick glimpse at it. I think I've I've heard young talk about, you know, I must have a dark side to be whole. So it's like, if we're not aware of this particular dark side, we're just unaware of maybe a big portion of ourselves. Yeah. To, so to study it, right. To, to learn this, this idea of it, to see how it shows up in other people, a lot easier than trying to see it in yourself at first. Hmm. Um, also the idea of projection, right. Is a thing to think about, right. Whenever you're angry at somebody else, right. You can't, or you can't stand this group of people. 
what's the thing that you're projecting on them that you can't stand about yourself, right? To always kind of ask that question of like, where is this projection um, is a really difficult question. Nobody wants to ask, right? But if you look at, I think maybe I even talked about this in the one with, uh, after uh, Juan gave his talk about Marcus Aurelius and vulnerability, talking about that. Yeah, it's a really vulnerable thing to look at. Um, one example, let me try to think of an example might be that, you know, so even being a parent, right? And you, you want what's best for your kid, right? But then I forget the author, but they were talking about how to really be honest with yourself that you don't really know what's best, right? You don't know, you know, for a kid that's in high school, exactly where the economy is going to be in, you know, four or six years, right? So to look at yourself and admit that, again, humility, right? Admit that you might be wrong and that while you're, you're doing what's best for them, is it really just your own insecurities, right? Like I need safety and stability and I need to know they're going to have a career where everything's set for them rather than it makes me scared that they might be an artist and I don't know if they'll be able to, you know, so pay their own bills. Um, yet maybe you cause some harm to force them to be your vision of it. Yeah. It is interesting how so much ties back into this area of uncertainty where you're basically operating in this place of where you're trying not to crystal ball gaze into the to the future and things like that which maybe also connects with mindfulness that that you've talked about of of just we have just this moment the right now when it comes to young would you recommend a particular book any any of his works that you know you're you're a fan of and if there's a good starting point to for someone that's maybe very new to Carl Jung yeah i think that's um let me sure i got the right title yeah um man and his symbols it was actually the last book that he wrote and he wrote one chapter mm-hmm. and then there's several other jungian um analysts who write some of the other chapters and that um, you know, he really wrote it for the, the general audience and it kind of collects a lot of his ideas into what are these idea of, uh, symbols. And to some extent, a symbol is something that we give meaning to. So this idea of recognizing how we give meaning to things. And this is, you know, connects for in mythology as well, that it's not just, uh, um, it's not just the story, but there's a significance that we put onto it, what it means to us uniquely as well. And I'm trying to think of any other places to start. Uh, the, the book that actually started it for me is um, Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life by Hollis. Um, so Jung himself is kind of hard to read quite often. And I think it really helps to read some other authors that kind of uh, introduce you to him. Yeah. Yeah, he's great. Big fan of his of his work. Yeah. Um, let me transition to this wrap-up question our time is is went by here pretty pretty quick i ask most guests time permitted how they define or think about wisdom in daily life anything come to mind when you think of you know practical wisdom yeah the the one i was describing earlier of wise mind is one that i actually use quite often right is to and, and it goes a little bit back as you're talking about with the uh the, the crystal ball and to notice what you're telling yourself, right? That, you know, to just look at your feeling, right? And this, this feels true, right? Is that wisdom? Um, 
to notice that you're thinking this idea and think about your thought. That's kind of the CBT approach, right? Is that, um, why, why might I be thinking that is, is one way to say it. And then, mm. um, other than that, I, I really do like that idea of the, the unity of virtue idea that it's, you know, is it courageous to do something, right? Is it really courage, right? It's, it really is courage if it's also with wisdom, right? And that that's also actually with justice as well, which is kind of like love, right? So that, that courage could, if, if it's harming people, um, you know, it, it, although that's actually even a tough one, right? That may, maybe sometimes you need to tell people things they don't want to hear, that that's actually going to help them, right? But so that question, is it coming from a place of love, right? That that's actually tied into wisdom. That, that's an idea I've been thinking about a lot lately. But. Hmm. I have as well. Uh, I've, I've definitely recently, you know, thought about wisdom and love as two sides of the same coin. And, and many people have written about that, uh, that connection. Well, we're going to continue the conversation and and talk briefly about Stoic mindfulness, and, and listeners can check that out on the on Perennial Meditations on Substack or the Perennial Meditations podcast. But before we get to that, where would you point listeners that are interested in learning more about you, connecting, and, and your work in the world? Yeah, I have a website, prosokeproject.com, where... Um that kind of connects to the, the different projects I'm working on. So that connects to the Between Two Ravens mythology blog and also to the Walled Garden where I have the, the Prosoke project writing about philosophy and psychology and a little bit of the mythology gets mixed in there as well. And then the meat, for someone not familiar with that term, Prosecchi, yeah. what, what is the meaning of that? That's the, the word for focused attention that the ancient, you know, in ancient Greek that the Stoics used as they talk about this idea of focusing your attention on what's really important, which is in, in Stoicism, it's virtue, it's the dichotomy of control, it's uh, uh, accepting your fate, right? So that to focus your mind there, it's it's mindfulness, but it's with that uh, Stoic Greek approach has some parallels with the like Buddhist idea of mindfulness. Well, love it. Uh, this has been great. Dave Alexander, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice.